This week, Neiman Marcus spars with Marble Ridge, Monotronics announces exchange offer, Sears receives deleveraging proposal from ESL. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to The Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Reorg Emerging Markets Senior Distressed Debt Analyst Kyle Owusu sits down with Catherine Wiegert, editor for Reorg Emerging Markets, and Erwin Sifuentes, who specializes in LATAM primaries for Reorg Emerging Markets, to discuss Digicel, Petrotrin, and trends in the Latin American primary market. It's Sunday, September 30th. On Tuesday, Marvel Ridge sent a letter to Neiman Marcus suggesting that the potential sale of Neiman's My Teresa business, along with other premier real estate assets, would generate, quote, billions of dollars in proceeds that could be used to substantially reduce the company's indebtedness and put the company on more solid financial footing, enabling it to invest in and grow its core business. This came after the fund asserted last week that the transfer of My Teresa may have violated the company's debt documents and may be susceptible to avoidance as a fraudulent transfer. A Neiman Marcus spokesperson told Reorg that Neiman Marcus is not open to moving My Teresa back down the organizational structure in order for, to facilitate a refinancing of the company's upcoming 2020 and 2021 maturities. Ascent Capital Group, the parent of security alarm monitoring company Monotronics, announced a deal on Tuesday to exchange Monotronics 9 and 1 8 notes due 2020 for an equal principal amount of new Monotronics second lien notes. If the proposed transaction is consummated, the new second lien notes will pay both 6% cash interest and 6% pick interest and will mature in 2023. Bondholders with about two-thirds of the outstanding principal of 9 and 1 8 notes have agreed to participate in the offer, the company said. In addition, an offer may be made to eligible holders to exchange Ascent convertible notes for new third lien notes to be issued by Monotronics. The company terminated its previous exchange offer, which would have paid cash for the 9 and 1 8 notes through a Dutch auction, plus new notes and warrants. The company said the exchange offer could launch as soon as within the next 20 business days. However, the form of that offer will depend on the outcome of a solicitation of amendments to the Monotronics credit agreement. Those amendments would permit the issuance of second and thirdly notes and also provide certain covenant relief. On Monday, Sears Holdings announced in a press release that its board of directors received a proposal from ESL Investments, Inc. regarding certain liability management and real estate transactions. ESL said its goal is to enable Sears to, quote, return to profitability. And the proposal also highlights the upcoming $134 million secondly notes maturity on October 15th. According to Sears press release, Sears board has directed management and its legal and financial advisors to work closely with ESL, its advisors, and other stakeholders to, quote, seek to pursue liability management transactions of the nature described in the proposal. An amended 13D filed on Monday suggests that the proposed exchange offers to eligible holders of second lien and unsecured debt, quote, together could save holdings approximately $33 million per year in cash interest and eliminate approximately $1.1 billion in debt. 
ESL's proposal also contemplates a number of real estate transactions intended to eliminate approximately $1.5 billion of real estate debt, and also contemplates $1.75 billion in deleveraging impact from asset sales. On Monday, RIOC reported that the Puerto Rico Public-Private Partnerships Authority signed Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton to a $4.75 million advisory contract related to Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority privatization transactions. Under the fiscal 2019 contract reviewed by Reorg Research, Cleary Gottlieb will act as advisor to the P3 Authority and the Puerto Rico government and provide legal advisory and consulting services. On Tuesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board announced in a press release that it certified a revised budget for the Puerto Rico Energy Bureau of $7.6 million for fiscal year 2019, as well as the revised fiscal year 2019 budget for the Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, or PRASA. According to the release, the budget for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or PREPA, is still under consideration by the Oversight Board, and it is expected to be certified soon. In the Title III proceedings, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Wednesday issued an opinion dismissing several counts of the fiscal plan challenge brought by labor union UTIR. However, UTIR's Constitutional Contracts Clause claims against the Commonwealth and PREPA survived. And in Puerto Rico's ongoing hurricane recovery, Governor Ricardo Rocio and other top Commonwealth government officials have said that, quote, excessive bureaucracy imposed by FEMA is slowing down the flow of federal reconstruction dollars and putting the island's recovery at risk. Puerto Rico officials say that FEMA's initial reviews of proposed permanent works is also behind schedule. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, Dynegy Examiner 2012 report could provide insight into strengths, weaknesses, of potential fraudulent transfer claims tied to Neiman My Teresa transfer. Number two, ultra petroleum borrowing base reduced by $100 million to $1.3 billion. Cleansing materials include update to reserves. And number three, American Tire Term Loan Administrative Agent Bank of America resigns. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Karen, and greetings all y'all out in podcast land. And if I had to pick a word to describe the week, it would be deadline or perhaps expiration because there's a lot of them. Starting with Monday, the 1st of October, Sears Holdings. It's the deadline for them to post the full amount of their second lien maturity, $134 million, into reserve account. That maturity is actually due on October 15th. Monotronics has a 26.7 million coupon due on its 2020s. As for Gasstar, on which we initiated coverage last week, it's a deadline for interested parties to submit proposals for merger transactions, preferably one that would, and I quote, result in the full satisfaction of Gasstar's outstanding first and second lien funded indebtedness. Tuesday, October 2nd, is the outside date for the PREPA RSA in Puerto Rico, and in the courthouse we have a planned confirmation hearing for Gibson, guitar maker to the gods. Wednesday, October 3rd, also in Puerto Rico, we have the GDB-related derivative standing and motion to dismiss hearing. Thursday, October 3rd, for American Tire, it's the expiration of the grace period for the subordinated notes. And Friday, October 5th, for whom does the bell toll? For Westmoreland Coal and PetraQuest, both of which come up against forbearance expirations. 
expiration of another count for PHI. In this case, the tender for their 2019s. On Friday, of course, the company retained Houlihan Loki and borrowed $130 million from an affiliate of the CFO, CF, CEO excuse me, to repay revolver borrowings. And that's all I got. Karen, back to you. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Kyle Owusu discusses Digicel, Petrotrin, and LATAM primary bond issuances with our Reorg Emerging Markets editor, Catherine Wiegert, and LATAM primary specialist, Erwin Sifuentes. Handing it to you, Kyle. Hello, my name is Kyle Owusu. I'm a senior distressed debt analyst with Reorg Emerging Markets, and I'm here with my colleagues, Catherine Wiegert, editor for Reorg Emerging Markets, and Erwin Sifuentes, who specializes in LATAM primaries for Reorg Emerging Markets. Today, we're going to discuss Petrochrin, Digicel, and Erwin is going to give us an update on the LATAM high yield market. Uh, so, starting with Petrochrin, um, Catherine, Petrogen bonds used to trade well above par. Um, now they're in the low 90s. Can you just walk us through what happened? Absolutely. Um, well, Petrogen for much of the year has been trying to restructure its operations. The company has been working with McKinsey, but I think management decided it had to cut costs and cut its losses completely and shut down the part of the business that was losing money, the refinery. For those of you who aren't familiar with Petrotrin, the company has various operating units. The company runs the refinery, a hospital, and then has its onshore and offshore exploration and production businesses along with the marketing business. As, as part of its restructuring, the company has sought to move away from refining in favor of exploration and production. Um, and I think the company really surprised markets when it decided to close the refinery because it's literally uh, Trinidad and Tobago's only refinery and the employer for thousands of Trinidadians. In fact, um, most local trade groups even expected Petrotrin at most to lay off employees. Nobody actually expected them to close the refinery. So Petrotrin has two bonds. It has an 850 million nine and three quarter senior unsecured bond due 2019 and a 750 million six percent senior unsecured bond due 2020. Uh, the existing bondholders, um, a lot of real money guys, bought the bonds with the understanding that Petrotrin was a quasi-sovereign credit with implicit support from the Trinidad and Tobago government. But we're seeing now that's not quite the case. The company uh, doesn't have the level of support we uh, thought that it did, and we're seeing that reflected in the bond prices. The 2019s, for example, were quoted in the 105, 106 area earlier this year, and they're now quoted closer to the 92, 93 area. And just making the situation worse, uh, Petrotrin management uh, recently said that they would actually lay off all of its workers before it rehires people on the exploration and production business. This means that some 3,500 people will lose their jobs. The government initially said the closure would affect only about uh, 2,600 permanent jobs, so it clearly seems like the situation is worse than we expected. Interesting. So this seems like a situation where it's really important to understand uh, what what the sovereign um, is, is really doing. And so what is the position of the Trinidad and Tobago government on this matter, and what does that mean for Petrochina's creditors? That's an interesting question. Uh, Trinidad and Tobago's prime minister has expressed support for Petrotrain's decision to close the refinery, uh, but they haven't provided a, a formal position on the repayment with respect to the company's debt maturities. Like I said, Petrotrain has an 850 million nine and three quarter uh, bond that matures next 
August, and it's clear the company doesn't have the cash to pay the maturity. And an increasing number of individuals from within the government are saying that Trinidad and Tobago uh, doesn't have the cash either. Uh, so we're not sure yet what will happen with the 2019s, but uh, we've seen some press reports, uh, some local press reports suggest that the government is in the preliminary stage of discussing refinancing and getting ready to put out a request for a proposal as soon as next month. Um, now, the market for emerging market debt is very challenging right now, and it won't get easier for Petrotran from here, specifically because S&P appears poised to downgrade the company at least a notch if it doesn't refinance the 19s by the end of the year. Moody's has also warned that it could take action against the company uh, if Petrotran experiences uh, extended refinery downtime, weaker liquidity, or diminished government support. And obviously, if Petrotran is downgraded, the refinancing will be just that much more expensive because investors will demand uh, uh, to get paid not just for extending maturities, but also assuming greater credit risk in light of the downgrade and the risks related to the corporate restructuring. Um, I also think that it's important to note that uh, Petrotrans serves as a credit risk for Trinidad and Tobago, too, because the island is split rated, and there's real risk that the rating agencies uh, could downgrade the sovereign to junk territory completely if it doesn't manage the situation well. Prime Minister uh, Dr. Keith Rowley even alluded to the risk in recent uh, addresses concerning the Petrotrain layoffs. So needless to say, uh, there's a lot of risk here, not just for Petrotrain, but for Trinidad and Tobago, too, even though the 2019 bonds don't carry an explicit guarantee from the government. Got it. So you have $850 million maturing um, next August. The company doesn't have enough cash. Uh, Trinidad and Tobago probably doesn't have um, the resources to meet that maturity. So what options does Petrotrin have now and where do we go from here? Petrotrain can certainly try to do a refinancing to extend the 19s, and there is talk, like I said, in the market that this might be feasible um, if the government provides a guarantee as part of the deal. Uh, some investors think uh, that Trinidad and Tobago should not even do a refinancing, though, and should focus more on ring-fencing the company and restructure not only its operations, but also its outstanding debt. Um, Trinidad and Tobago is trying to attract investors to transform Petrotrin's refining business to an exploration and production firm. Uh, this is hard to do, though, with so much debt on the books. Um, some investors think the government would actually be better off separating the bad asset, the refinery, and the debt from the good assets, which would be the EMP business, so you can attract new capital at the EMP uh, at the EMP unit. Uh, this is just market chatter, of course. The government hasn't provided any indications that it will actually do this, but some investors think this wouldn't be a bad idea. This is what's normal. This is what's normal in a restructuring. Great, thank you. So now we will move um, to Digicel, um, so we'll stick with you, Catherine. Um, can you walk us through the the current deal on on the uh, on the table right now? Sure. Uh, basically, Digicel proposed an exchange and consent solicitation for any and all of its two billion eight and a quarter senior notes due twenty twenty, and its one billion uh, seven and eighth senior unsecured notes due twenty twenty two. These notes were issued out of uh, Digicel Group Limited, the holding company, uh, and they want to exchange those bonds for new bonds carrying basically the same principal amounts, the same coupon on rates um, and extending those the existing bonds for two years. So the new the new bonds will be due 2022 and 2024. Um, what's important to note here is that Digicel's new bonds will be issued out of two newly created entities that are domiciled in Bermuda, and the 22s will rank senior to the 20. 
2024s. Um, so basically, the 2020s will exchange their new bonds uh, for the 2022s. They'll get the same coupon rates, um, but they'll arguably get better credit risk um, without getting any additional cash consideration um, because they will be uh, exchanging for a more senior note, whereas the 2022s will be exchanging for the 2024s, and they'll be subordinated to the 2020s, um, but they will actually get a higher coupon. Uh, their coupon goes up to eight and a quarter, um, but that includes a kind of kip, uh, pick component um, to compensate for the subordination. And along with the exchange of the notes, Digicel is also seeking consents to strip uh, the existing notes that are not exchanged uh, to eliminate restrictive covenants and events of default. Um, so this basically means that investors who do not participate in the exchange will not only be subordinated to the newly issued notes, but they'll also be stripped of their covenants too. So under this deal, you've got the 2022 bondholders um, Essentially, that they'll be structurally subordinated to the 2020 bondholders, even though both sets of notes were issued out of the same box. Um, why did the company structure the deal that way? Uh, yeah, so this that's correct. Uh, Digicel's uh, deal will basically change the corporate structure. The existing notes, like I said, were issued out of the hold co, Digicel Group Limited, DGL. The new notes will be issued out of two separate entities, uh, Digicel Group 1 and Digicel Group 2. The latter entity is is a direct subsidiary of the Holdco, so Digicel Group 1, which is the issuing entity for the 22s, is structurally senior to Digicel Group 2, the issuing entity for the 2024s. Digicel hasn't said anything specific as to why it structured the deal this way, but this certainly has been the focus of many investors in the market, um, because at, because on the surface, it looks like Digicel is putting its crossholders, its largest investors, at a disadvantage in favor of uh, other hedge funds that hold the 2020s. Now, based on our work and our conversations with uh, folks in the market, we believe Digicel has done this specifically because it needs more than just the crossholders to tender their bonds to meet, to lower the near-term uh, debt burden. So it needs to appeal to a broader group, a broader group of 2020 holders and the 2022 holders uh, to reach a high tender threshold. Uh, so basically, uh, Digicel is, seems like it's walking a very fine line. At least that's the feedback that we've been getting. It needs to appeal not just just to the crossholders, but to a substantial amount of the 2020 holders uh, to reach the level of participation it needs to kind of complete its tender offer. Getting approval from the crossholders alone won't be enough to address Digicel's near-term leverage concerns. Great, thanks. And um, I, I'm hearing or I've heard um, that there's there's an Aiken Gump bondholder group. Um, the steering committee owns um, roughly 50% of the um, of the 2020 and 2022 notes, um, and all told, the steering committee plus um, other bondholders hold, uh, I believe it's 60%. Um, what do you think that group is going to ask for? There's a lot of speculation uh, about the Aiken Group and what they want. We've had little communication from them apart from a couple of uh, letters they've distributed to the market recently. Um, but we believe, and I think the market is generally in agreement, that they'll want to address the pari passu treatment between the 2020s and the 2022s. 
uh, holes in the covenants, they might want to tighten those up. Uh, the seniority of intercompany loans between uh, the Digicel Panama entity and the Holdco relative to the uh, newly issued bonds and the flow of proceeds in the event that that Panama entity or any other entities within the group are sold at some point over the next few years. Um, there's also been some talk that they might want to ask for higher coupons. And is there a possibility that any other groups can form? Uh, it certainly seems so. Um, the Aiken Group is predominantly cross-holders, and there are apparently a number of other funds uh, that are holding the 2020s that are not part of that group, other hedge funds. Uh, we're still trying to understand the dynamics between the company and the various bondholders and their respective groups, but we've been told that uh, struck is trying to organize a group of 2020 holders and that Mill Bank is also trying to organize another group. Um, we're not sure what leverage, like I said, we're not sure what leverage uh, any of these groups might have in negotiating a deal with Digicel simply because Digicel technically needs consents from holders representing only 50% of the principal amount of the 2020s and the 22s to strip the covenants. And the cross-holder group alone can meet that threshold. Uh, so really, technically speaking, Digicel just needs agreement from uh, that cross-holder group to consummate a tender and strip the covenants. Uh, but like I said earlier, they need uh, support from other 2020 holders to increase the tender threshold to reduce its leverage burden in the near term over time. And what do you think the next steps are here? It's honestly difficult to say because the situation is still very fluid. Uh, Digicel extended the tender deadline through October to continue what it describes as constructive negotiations with the Aiken Group. Uh, both sides are very tight-lipped, so it's hard to say with any certainty how constructive the discussions are. Um, what we do know is that the bondholders in the Aiken Group have rejected the initial terms presented by Digicel, um, but they haven't been vocal yet about what they would like, what they're specifically amenable to. I think the market will be paying attention to the coupon payments that are going to be coming due between the end of September and mid-October, and there is a lot of speculation as to whether or not Digicel will pay those either because it doesn't have, it may or may not have the cash to pay the coupons, um, or it may opt to go into a grace period to try and coerce bondholders to accept a deal. That obviously wouldn't be very constructive. So the flip side of the argument is that Digicel will remain current on its payments to pursue negotiations with the bondholders. And I think that summarizes the dynamics between the company and the various bondholders. Um, so, Kyle, I would actually like to turn to you uh, so you can tell us a little bit more about uh, Digicel's uh, uh, financial situation and more specific um, uh, details about the covenants. So why don't you walk me first through the capital structure? What is the pro forma a creation multiple through the 22s, and are there any comps? Yeah, sure. So um, you know, just starting with um, the, the capital structure as it is, you have roughly $1.5 billion of debt sitting um, at Digicel International Finance, which is an entity um, relative to the other, other entity, issuing entities in the capital structure that sits closest to um, the Caribbean assets. Um, then you've got roughly $2.2 billion of debt at Digicel Limited, um, and you have um, roughly $95 million of debt at uh, Digicel Pacific. And then finally, um, at the Holdco, you have the $2 billion, um, eight and a quarter 2020 notes and, seven and, and $1 billion, seven and an eighth uh, 
2022 notes. Um, I should go back and say that at, at the Digicel Limited box, um, that, that Digicel Limited Opco debt, there's 1.3 billion, 6% 21 notes, um, and 925 million, 6 and 3 quarter 23 notes. Um, as far as the creation multiple, um, so as, as you noted, Catherine, the Digicel 22s will be structurally senior to the 24s in the new exchange. Um, so you're creating um, your creation multiple through the 2022s pro forma is around five times. Um, you're creating the, um, the creation multiple through the Opco Digicel limited boxes around three and a half times. Um, and some comps that have been flagged to us and some comps that we've you know come across on our own um, include um, um, Millisom, which trades uh, at around 5.5 times. Um, and then you've got Liberty Latin America, which trades at around seven times. Um, Liberty Global actually bought um, a Digicel Peer cable and wireless in November 2015 um, for a headline multiple of uh, 10.7 times LTM EBITDA. Okay, great. And can you break down the business by geography and by product for us? Yeah, sure. So Digicel um, reported uh, in their offering memorandum, the most recent one related to this exchange, around $2.4 billion of revenue as of March 31, uh, 2018, so as of fiscal year end. Um, roughly 75% of that revenue came from its mobile business, um, roughly 9% for business solutions, 7% from cable TV, um, 3% from handsets, and the rest was uh, categorized as other. Um, uh, as far as the geographic breakdown, um, the big markets, you've got 17% of revenue from Jamaica, 15% from Haiti, 14% from Papua New Guinea, um, roughly 10.5% from Trinidad and Tobago, um, 7% from the French West Indies, and then 23% of the company's revenue comes from other locations um, in the in the Caribbean Um Yes, yeah, so it comes from other locations across the Caribbean. Okay, great. And what's uh, Digicel's market share right now? So the company is uh, number the, the number one operator in in most of the markets, uh, in most of the key markets, I should say that it operates. Um, you know, number it's number one in Jamaica, Haiti, Papua New Guinea, Trinidad and Tobago, and the French West Indies. Okay, great. And uh, can you explain to us what the company's strategy is, what its business strategy is? Yeah, sure. So you know, like most telecom. Um, Operators, and I think that our colleagues over in Europe touched upon this when they discussed the telecoms. But you know, Digicel is focused on providing a combination of mobile business solutions, cable TV, and uh, and broadband. Um, the company is uh, has been investing in hybrid fiber, coaxial fiber to the home, and fiber to the building networks organically um, and through acquisitions. In addition, Digicel wants to monetize growth in data demand and drive consumption of, digi of digital content um, by using its mobile business to leverage assets across its other business lines, like cable TV and broadband. Um, so you can potentially view, for example, mobile video and uh, stream music over your phone. Um, the company's uh, offering memorandum, uh, interestingly, also noted that Digicel is exploring and engaging in discussions about potential acquisitions. 
Um, in addition, the company is rolling out um, LTE in its markets and uh, you know delivering wider and more enhanced uh, 4G coverage. So as of March 31, 2018, Digicel had deployed LTE in 21 markets and uh, expects to deploy uh, in 28 markets by March 31, 2019. And the company is working um, with Chinese telecom equipment provider ZTE to upgrade its network. Okay, and uh, what are the risks to the business? So I would say the the main risks, um, and certainly this is a non-exhaustive exhaustive list, and some people probably have others, um, but I think the main ones are probably FX, um, given that a lot of the um, most, if not all, of the revenue is is, is denominated in local currencies. Um, also, roughly ninety two percent of Digicel subscribers um, at March thirty first, twenty eight, were prepaid, which means they're buying credit in advance of service use. Um, this type of customer base is less sticky, so you're more likely more likely to see um, customers switch wireless carriers when they're prepaid. Um, because the company's churn um, for fiscal year. Uh, 17 and 16 was uh, 3.9%. Um, I'm sorry, for 18, 17, and 16, it was 3.9%, 4.1%, and 4.4%, respectively. Um, the next risk is probably capital intensi- ten- intensity. Um, the telecom business is, is you know, known to be capital intensive. Digicel's um, DNA was roughly 50% of its $1 billion fiscal year 18 EBITDA, um, which really isn't out of line for the telecom industry, but it does indicate that the telecom industry relative to others is, is, uh, re- requires a lot of capex. And you know, it's, it's, it's difficult for a company that, that's levered and that has a high amount of um, cash interest relative to EBITDA to meet those um, capex requirements to reinvest in the business. Um, and the last one I would say is uh, is regulatory. So Digicel's offering memorandum warns that that comp- that countries such as Papua New Guinea, Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, etc., um, are are contemplating regulations. Um, for example, um, the Jamaican regulator, uh, the Office of Utilities Regulation, or OUR, imposed uh, regulated pricing in May 2012. So there's always a risk that um, other countries could follow suit. Okay, great. And uh, what is Digicel's cash burn? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in the latest uh, fiscal year, free cash flow was around negative two hundred fifty million, um, and that you know just net cash from operations um, after stripping out interest expenses, less capex. Um, if you just look at uh, sort of just do a simplistic um, EBITDA, less cash interest, less cash taxes, less cash, less cash capex, uh, less working capital. Um, you know, just just to throw some figures out, the EBITDA was around a billion. You have around 440 million of cash interest, 165 million of taxes, um, and roughly 500 million of cash capex if you include what the company spent on intangibles. Um, the there was an accounts receivable cash outflow of 40 million, an inventory outflow of two million, and a payables outflow of around 23, 22 and a half million. So taken together. Um, you know that translates to around 150 million of cash flow, cash burn rather. Um, so suffice it to say, roughly, you know, call it 200 or 200 million of cash burn is, is probably a safe run rate. Okay, great. And uh, we're actually going to take a step back now and take a look at the Latin America primary markets. And so, Erwin, I'm going to turn to you and ask you if you can describe to me what you think are the five most notable LATAM issuances uh, this year. Thanks, Catherine. Um, Going back uh, towards the beginning of the year, we noted that Argentina issued 
triple tranche notes collectively worth about 8.9 billion on maturity dates of 2023, 2028, and 2024, 2048, excuse me. Uh, demand for the issue was high at around 21.4 billion, and the government said funds from the issue would cover approximately a third of their financing needs for this year. Uh, when Argentina came to the market, that occurred just as the economy was being turned sour amid rising inflation, a strengthening dollar, as well as investors disappointed with perceived government interference in the central bank. Um, moving on to neighboring Brazil, Petrobras was one of several uh, sovereign corporate issuers from that country that flooded the market in the first few weeks of this year. In the first six weeks of this year, specifically, they collectively sold around $5 billion worth of new notes. Uh, Petrobras itself priced a $2 billion, five and three-quarter bond to 2029 to 2029 at 98.402, till 5.95%. Um, when they came to the market, that's when global equity markets, shortly after, entered a period of volatility, while investors became more risk-averse, and we observed more capital outflow. So for the past six, seven months, issuers, um, high-yield issuers out of Latin America, they're looking to come to the market, have had to modify their tenors and look to do smaller deals in order to accommodate demands from potential creditors. Uh, this is the case with two issuers being uh, Brazilian petrochemical company Unigel and Hunt Oil Company of Peru. Uh, Unigel in May sold a 200 million, 10.5% five-year non-call three bond issue at par after having previously tried to market a 400 million senior unsecured callable bond due in 2025. Meanwhile, Hunt in that same month of May included as part of its 600 million, 6.375% 10-year senior unsecured assurance a trust structure. And as part of the trust structure, proceeds from the sales of the notes would flow to the trust and can only be accessed if Hunt's leverage remained below 1.3 times. Um, the last notable issuance would be Susano, which came to the market earlier this month after a weeks-long drought amongst Latin American high-yield issuers. Um, they came out they sold a one billion six percent senior unsecured note to twenty twenty nine tilled six point one two five percent. Now aside from being the first new notes sold by a Latin American high yield issuer in approximately three months, Susano's recent most deal and is notable in that it tried to sell new debt earlier this month, but they tamed the deal due to unfavorable market conditions along with the shaky financial and political situation in Brazil. Uh, this despite one banker telling us that Susano's business is pretty much 100% export-oriented, so the issue would generally be less 
impact environmental issues. Great. And Erwin, can you kind of describe to me now where you're seeing pricing for short, medium, and longer-term bonds, given the type of uh, political and economic uh, volatility we're seeing throughout much of Latin America? Certainly. Um, I'm going to rewind back to January, since there really have been so few issuances made over the past uh, six months or so. So if we're looking at yields on the five-year notes, uh, they've shown the most variation. Though the yields on the latest deals that have come to market have been higher rather than the ones that have been uh, sold earlier during the year. If we take, for example, going back to January, the Argentine Republic, as well as Agua y Saneamientos, they sold yield issues at yields of 4.625% and 6.625% respectively, uh, whereas transactions late in the year, such as the aforementioned ones for you and John Susano, carried yields of 8.5% or higher. Um, for relatively smaller amounts, such as Frontier Energies, 350 million, 9.7%, five year non call bond that came out with a yield of 11.9%. Uh, further along the yield curve, we observe a tighter range of yields among notes maturing in 2025, that range being uh, between 5.95% and 7.25%. Uh, interestingly, most of these issues carry a call option particularly after the fourth year. Uh, one sell-side source explained to me that the issuers have been incorporating bonds with delayed call options as a tool to attract investors. And lastly, in terms of um, issues that are 10-year or long 10, quote-unquote, uh, yields have hovered around 5 and 3 quarters to 6.875% uh, range with the amounts varying between 250 million, as in as was um, noted in the tool tranche issue from Rio, to the one billion raised earlier this month by Susano. Okay, great. So let's talk about Susano a little bit more. Uh, they just issued a 10-year bond that priced at uh, six and an eighth. Um, why was this price wider than bonds that were priced uh, by its competitors, Clavine and uh, Fibria? Interesting question. Well, simply put, the timing was not as favorable as for Susano as it was to its twin counterparts in the Brazilian paper and pulp sector. Uh, Clavine and Fibria each came to the market with green bonds, respectively, in January and September of last year, with yields of 4.95% for Colombian and 5.7% for Fibria. At that time, market conditions were more favorable for high-yield issuers amid strong economic growth around the world. And this field is strengthening in currencies as well as narrowing bond yield spreads. Uh, Brazil, Brazil specifically began to turn the page by the latter months of last year with inflation tapering off, as well as an uptick in economic growth that hadn't been seen for years. Um, yet, as you alluded to earlier in the discussion, uh, the emerging market debt markets 
are currently facing a challenging scenario, which is highlighted by uh, volatility, as well as devalued currencies, including numbers in Rai, and in particular the Argentine peso, as well as elevated country risk levels and capital outflows. Now, amid this backdrop, as well as the uncertainty surrounding Brazil's upcoming presidential race, uh, first round to be held next month, uh, Susana was really keen on obtaining funding for its merger with Fibria and going through with this bond deal at the right time. Uh, before issuance, Susano had already received about $2.4 in funds to pay for this deal, uh, the bulk of which, a little over $9 billion, uh, from what they called, quote, certain international financial institutions, close quote. So after tabling the transaction, immediately after a roadshow at the beginning of the month, uh, the issuer saw as one banker explained to me their window of opportunity, and they were more than willing to pay a premium for the funds that they wanted through the international bond market. Great. And uh, Erwin, can you tell me, was it cheaper for Susano to issue the bond uh, than to use uh, committed facilities? Right. Um, I don't, it doesn't appear to be a case of cheaper, but more of of one of convenience. Um, different debt capital market sources have informed me that there's no need to raise some of its funds beyond its existing credit lines. And Susano viewed the international bond market as more of a sure thing rather than their committed facilities, uh, which the company, by the way, said this week would be reduced from a firm commitment of $4.4 billion to $2.2 billion. Uh, the committed facilities were, as one by site contact explained to me, less clear compared to selling notes. Okay, very interesting. Um, and Erwin, just one last question, you know, just again, stepping back. How would you characterize the LATAM primary markets this year? Well, it's been a really slow past couple of months, past six, seven months, um, with seemingly more issuers failing to come to market rather than those who've been successful. Um, Telecom Argentina, Camposol, Albanese, uh, to name a few, who have decided to either suspend or cancel altogether their plans to issue more notes. Um, others like Brazilian Meatpackers Minerva and Marfrig are playing the waiting game and hoping that the market improves just enough for them to execute their respective liability management strategies. Um, Susano's deal on September 17th may have been a game changer. Um, some analysts think that the market will be able to bounce back and regain some level of activity and rather than the uh, two new Latin American high yield assurances that we've seen over the past three months. Um, one analyst explained to me that the market has been rather steady in recent weeks, though investors are concerned over factors both external to the region, such as the U.S.-China trade tensions, as well as U.S. monetary policy and what the Fed Reserve decides to do, as well as issues uh, more internal to the region, like Argentina's financial scenario, as well as uncertainty with Brazil's election. Um, another 
banker that I talked to took a far more pessimistic outlook, and he thinks that the situation could conceivably worsen. Going back to the presidential elections, he noted that the two leading candidates, according to polls, for Brazil's next president, Jair Bolsonaro and Fernando Haddad, are far from being business friendly. That said, the one uh, factor, the one aspect that that capital market sources I've talked to all seemingly coincide in is that the Latin primary market won't rebound to volumes similar to those that we observed last year as well as at the beginning of the year. Great. Thanks a lot, um, both Catherine and Erwin, for your contributions um, to this week's segment. Um, And thank you to our listeners. Uh, We will catch you next time on the Reorg International podcast. Thank you, Kyle. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lund. This has been The Week in Reorg.